Father, we thank you again that we have this opportunity to consider your word together. And again, Lord, we confess that it is a closed book to us unless you open it. And so, Father, we turn to you and ask that in your grace and mercy, you might illumine your word to us by your spirit as we consider it together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning we were considering the parable of the sower. And as we saw this morning, there are really just four responses that we can have whenever we read or hear God's word. Firstly, Satan can snatch it away, snatch the seed away before it even takes root in our hearts. Then secondly, we saw that there was the superficial response, the emotional response that has no depth. We receive the word with gladness, but we have no root in ourselves. And so when persecution and tribulation come for the sake of the faith, we fall away. And then thirdly, there was the divided heart. An initial response to God's word, but the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, desire for other things comes in and becomes more valuable to us than eternal life. And so we bear no fruit. And then finally, of course, we saw the positive response, which results in that abundant harvest. But it's clear, isn't it, that that first group, the group from whom the seed is snatched away, never come to living faith in Christ. And the fourth group clearly come to a real, genuine, living faith that bears real fruit in their lives. But what are we to make of the middle two groups? Those who fall away when persecution and tribulation comes. Those whose faith, such as it is, is choked by the desire for other things. Well, some have concluded that what the parable teaches is that we can be born again and yet fall away completely from our faith to the point where we lose our salvation. So, for example, Dale Moody, who's a professor at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, said that this parable is, this is a quote, the plainest warning in Scripture that we can lose our salvation. And there are some passages in the New Testament that could lead one to that conclusion. We find them scattered throughout the New Testament, really from the Gospels right through to Revelation. Let me give you some examples. John 15, verses 5 and 6. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. If we fail to abide, Jesus says, we have no place in him. Or take, for example, Colossians Chapter 1, verses 21 to 23. 
And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight, if indeed, note the condition, you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you had heard. Over and over again, the New Testament seems to issue warnings that if we fall away from our faith, then we will not ultimately be saved. In fact, I think that we could put it like this. Our final salvation is conditional on perseverance. And that is a profoundly sobering thought. And in the light of those warnings, and there are many others that we could point to, one can see that how some might conclude, well, yes, it does seem that Christians can lose their salvation. But that is not the full picture. Because as we go through the New Testament, we find that it is also full of promises that a genuine believer, someone who's come to a real and a living faith in Christ, can be absolutely sure that they will be saved on the last day. So, for example, John chapter 6, verses 37 to 39. Jesus said, All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. That is the most amazing promise of assurance. Before creation, the Father has given certain people to his Son as a gift. All those given by the Father to the Son will come to the Son. They will have faith in Him. The Son will turn none of them away. The Son will lose none of them, but will raise all of them up on the last day. In other words, everyone given by the Father to the Son will be raised up on the last day. Well, how do we know if we have been so given by the Father to the Son? Well, because we have come to a living faith in Christ. Or take 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Paul says this, Jesus will also keep you firm to the end, so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Or from Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6, He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. But perhaps one of the strongest passages of assurance is Romans chapter 8. In verse 28 of that chapter, we read these words. We know that all things work together for good 
to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. How is it that Paul knows that all things are going to work together for the good of those who love God? Because in the next verse he says this, that those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. Whom he justified, these he also glorified. In other words, Paul is sure that everything... Even the worst suffering that we will have to endure is going to work for our good if we are trusting in Christ. Because God has an eternal plan for his church. There is this golden chain that begins with foreknowledge, that ends in glorification. It is never broken. Everyone whom God has foreknown will be glorified. Those whom God foreknew, he predestined. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. There are no exceptions. There are no conditions. There are no qualifications to that assurance. And as we read on in chapter 8, Paul continues in a similar vein, verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is nothing in all creation that can separate us from him. Now, someone might object and say, well, that may be true about other things, but what about myself? Can't I separate myself from Christ? But all the things that Paul points to are the very things that would make us want to separate from Christ, to throw in the towel, to give up. Persecution, starvation, martyrdom, the loss of possessions, the most profound dangers. These are the very things that would turn or threaten to turn our hearts against God. But we're assured that no matter what we go through, those things will not be able to turn our hearts against our Saviour. They will not be able to even begin to drive a wedge between us And God. All these passages, and again, there are many more that we could look at, point unequivocally to the fact that God promises to keep every Christian, to bring them safely 
to the day of judgment, still trusting in him. He promises, in other words, that he will not lose a single sheep of his flock. And what is striking is that these promises of assurance are all unconditional. The promise is not God will keep you if you do X, Y and Z. It is simply God will keep you. Full stop. So although we are clearly warned on the one hand against the danger of falling away from our faith, yet we have on the other hand these tremendous assurances that we are secure in Christ, that we can be absolutely sure of our final salvation. Well, if God unequivocally promises us this assurance of our final salvation, what then is the purpose of these warning passages? And the answer is that we need both if we are to persevere until the end of our lives. If we are still to be found trusting in Christ when we draw our final breath, we need both assurance and warning. Imagine for a moment that a father has a young child with him. He's doing some DIY, so he has a ladder out in the room. He tells his boy not to go up the ladder. He turns his back, and well, you can imagine what happens. As he turns his back, he sees that his boy is nearly towards the top, still moving up. And he knows that if he keeps moving, he is going to tip this ladder and it's going to come crashing down and may even take his life. Well, what does a father do in that situation? The first thing he will do, isn't it, is shout, stop, don't go any further. If you do, you will fall. But then he says to him, look at me. Keep your eyes fixed on me. I have you, you are safe, come down the ladder. There is both warning and there is assurance. The child needs both. And we are no different. The assurance passages guarantee us that we, if we have come to a true faith in Christ, can be absolutely certain that he will carry us through to the very end. But the warning passages are the means that he uses to achieve that purpose. So in other words, they function a little bit like a a label on a bottle of poison or a sign on a beach saying, danger, no swimming. By warning against the danger of falling away. So they urge the reader to draw closer to Christ, to keep trusting in him, to keep pressing on. You might say, but if believers are secure and have this tremendous assurance that if they are Christ and they are his to the end of their days, then aren't these warnings simply superfluous? I think we can make a a useful comparison with how God keeps us in the ordinary course of our life. God knows exactly how long each one of us will live. Psalm 139, verse 16. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. God knows 
precisely how long I will live. But at the same time, I like walking along the coastal path in Pembrokeshire, especially at the top of the cliffs. And in his providence, the way that God keeps me from going dangerously close to the edge is through the signs that warn me that have been put there by the National Trust. And I must take those signs seriously. I can't simply ignore the signs and sort of dance around on the edge of the cliff and say, but it doesn't matter because God has ordained my days. He knows exactly how long I'll live. He will keep me safe. If I am to be kept safe, I must heed the warnings given in the signs. God uses those warnings as a means to preserve my life, a means to realise his eternal plan for my life. And the warning passages we find in Scripture function in the same way. Or we could draw an analogy with prayer. On the one hand, God has an eternal sovereign will for his creation. He knows exactly what will happen from moment to moment. But on the other hand, he invites us to pray. He doesn't invite us to pray so that we will change his mind about the way that he has ordained things. It is the means that he has chosen to implement his sovereign will. We don't say, well, prayer doesn't matter because God's going to do it anyway. We take it seriously. We are called to pray. It is part and parcel of the way in which he implements his eternal sovereign will in our lives. And in the same way, we should take the warning passages seriously. Or we could say the same thing about preaching. On the one hand, God, before the foundation of the world, has elected some to salvation. He knows exactly who will be saved. In fact, he even gives faith to those who will be saved. But on the other hand, he tells us to preach the good news. We don't say, well, we're not going to bother to witness to Christ because God will just save whoever he has ordained to save anyway. The means by which he will implement his eternal sovereign will is through preaching and witnessing to Christ. We take his command to preach seriously. We don't say, well, there's no point in preaching. There's no point in witnessing. And in the same way, we need to take these warnings in Scripture seriously. The book of Hebrews has probably stronger warnings and more to say about the whole issue of perseverance and assurance than any other book in the New Testament. So let's turn together to Hebrews 6 to see how this assurance and the warning work together. Now the church to whom this letter is written had started, started well. You can, as you read through the whole letter, you see that they have had a good start. But what's happening is that they are starting to drift away, or at least some of them are starting to drift away from the faith. They are a church really in peril. And we see the problem in chapter 5, verses 11 
to 14. What is the problem? Well, verse 11, they have neglected God's word. They have become dull of hearing. We, in fact, see the same thing earlier on in the letter. We see it, for example, in chapter 2 and verse 1, where the writer warns them to give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. They have become dull of hearing. And again in chapter 4, verse 2, of the Israelites in the wilderness, the writer warns, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. Again, the danger there is that they are not listening carefully. They are hearing the word with their physical ears, but they're not hearing with their spiritual ears. As Jesus says, as we saw this morning in Mark 4, they need to take heed to how they hear. That's the problem. They're not listening, and so they're beginning to drift And then in chapter 6, verses 1 to 8, we have the warning. The neglect of God's word is causing them to drift. And the heart of the warning is found starting at verse 4. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. The writer is warning them that if they continue, they are in danger of losing their salvation entirely. This is not a warning against simply the loss of rewards or the loss of an additional blessing beyond salvation. This is a warning of the danger of losing salvation. We see that very clearly in verses 7 and 8, in which we are warned that land which persistently yields no fruit, but only thorns and briars, is rejected. And if things do not change, the land... And notice the land, not the plants, but the land itself will be burned. It is a picture, not of the loss of rewards, but it is a picture of the loss of, final, of salvation. It is a picture of final judgment. And it seems that the writer intends that the whole church should take this warning to heart. His description of those who fall away is written in such a way that it could encompass real believers. Once enlightened, have tasted the heavenly gift, have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, have tasted the good word of God, have tasted the powers of the age to come. This is a controversial passage. A lot of ink has been spilt on it, asking, well, are these Christians that are in view, are these non-Christians? I think the writer intends that the hearers are to see these people as Christians. I say that for this reason. They were once enlightened. If you look at chapter 10 and verse 32, you find exactly the same word referring to the church as a whole. When you were enlightened. 
We see that they have tasted the heavenly gift. They've tasted the good word of God. They've tasted the powers of the age to come. And we might say, well, tasting that seems maybe a, a superficial experience of those things. But of course, back in chapter 2 and verse 9, what do we read about Jesus' death? We read that he tasted death for everyone. It's the same word. It doesn't mean a superficial tasting. It means a complete experience of those things. And then we read that they have become partakers of the Holy Spirit. Well, if you go back to chapter 3, into the first verse, therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. It's the same word that's being used. If you drop down to verse 14, for we have become partakers of Christ. It's the same word word that's being used. It's difficult to think that a partaker of the Holy Spirit is different from a partaker of Christ. Let me be absolutely clear, I'm not saying that a Christian can in fact lose their salvation. I think the assurance passages make that plain. But what I think is the case, is that the writer wants the whole church to sit up and take notice. He wants them all to feel the weight of this warning, to take heed. He wants them to act on the basis of it, where they are beginning to drift, to repent and to come back to Jesus. But at the same time, he is assured that the church are in fact true believers, and that they will in fact be okay. If we turn back to chapter 6 and to verse 9, we read these words. We are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. Why is he so confident? Because there is still some fruit evident in their lives. God is not unjust to forget your work and labour of love which you have shown toward his name and that you have ministered to the saints in the past and do minister in the present. There is past fruit, there is ongoing fruit and where there is fruit, there is life. His confidence that they will, in fact, ultimately persevere, of course, is not his confidence in them, but it's his confidence in Christ and what he has done for them. And nowhere is this clearer than in chapter 10 and verse 14, where he says this, By one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. That's the basis of his confidence as he writes these people. He sees fruit in their lives. He knows that the work of Christ on the cross has perfected those who are his forever. And so although they are drifting, he is confident that they are ultimately his, but he wants them to be warned. He wants them to feel the weight of this warning because these warnings are the means by which God causes us 
enables us to persevere. We are eternally secure in him, but we need to heed the warnings of Scripture. So returning to the parable where we started, the parable of the sower, what are we to make of the plant that grows in rocky soil, the plant choked by the weeds? Well, if we have trusted in Christ, if we have come to a living faith in him, if we have been born again, we can be absolutely confident that we are secure in him. The devil will tie and drag us down with doubts about our salvation. But we must read these assurance passages and assure ourselves that no, if I am Christ, then I am his until my final day. But we will persevere where we become presumptuous, where we start to drift, where we start to neglect spiritual things by heeding the warnings of Scripture. It is both the assurances and the warnings that will enable us to persevere. And so it seems to me that another aspect of the parable of the sower is that it is meant to function as one of these warning passages. It is meant to function to warn us against the danger of drifting, the danger of responding superficially to Christ, the danger of having that divided heart of treasuring other things more than him. Am I really rooted in Christ is a question we need to ask ourselves or has our response to him been one that is superficial and shallow or is it one that is becoming superficial and shallow? Well, if it is, then we must return to him. We must repent. We must ask for his forgiveness. Am I becoming entangled by weeds and thistles? Is my heart divided? Am I treasuring other things above Christ? Again, if so, we must repent. We must return to Christ. We must seek his forgiveness, his restoration. I must, by his grace, pull up these thistles and these weeds that so threaten to choke our faith. We must take the warnings as seriously as we take the assurances because both of them together are the means by which God will preserve us to the end. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you that you have given us everything that we need in your word. We thank you that in your wisdom, you have given us passages both giving us that wonderful assurance that if we are yours, we are yours forever because the work that Christ has done on the cross is perfect. And yet in your wisdom, you've also given us these warning passages. Father, I know my own heart my own temptation to gloss over the warning passages, to focus on the assurance. Father, I pray that you would guard us all against that. Lord, we pray that by your Spirit, you will enable us to feel the weight of these passages and that through them, you would enable us to persevere until the very end. 
in Jesus' name. Amen.